Yo, yo, yo. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the LTK Show. My name is Luther Kangas, and on today's episode, I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Ongstead. And today, we talk to Harvey Martin. Harvey's our guest. He's the founder of the MindStrong Project. And what Harvey does through the MindStrong Project is he teaches athletes how to breathe. He works with them with their, with their breath work, which helps them to enhance their performance just by learning how to breathe better. And he also works with them with their mindset. Okay, and the cool thing about this conversation is anybody at any age, I feel, can benefit from this conversation and like what we talk about. All right, it was really interesting and just glad that he was able to join us. He also talked about his minor league baseball career and really like the reasons behind why he formed the MindStrong Project. So before we get into it, I want to take some time to thank our sponsor, the JP4 Foundation. I'm super proud to be working with an organization like them. And what they do is they use the game of baseball to provide healthy meals, healthy activities, and healthy relationships for youth in the Twin Cities. You can find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the handle JP4 Foundation or by visiting them at jp4foundation.org. All right, guys. It's time to roll with Harvey Martin. All right, so this is what I got for you, man. We got a Division II All-American pitcher at, Man- at Minnesota State Mankato. Played yep. in the minor leagues for the Milwaukee Brewers. He's the founder of the MindStrong Project. He's trained numerous professional and college athletes in the art of breathing and mindset. His name is Harvey Martin. How you doing, man? Good, man. Thanks for having me, Luther and Eric. Appreciate it, boys. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm excited to, to talk to you about some some of the stuff you're up to here so we usually get things started man with with the warm-up just kind of loosen things up here um we'll fire some questions at you so who's the best player you played with or against in your baseball career oh man okay i see where we're going with the warm-up uh (laughs) the best player i played against or played with that's a great question uh I would say statistically it'd have to be DJ LeMayhew. Played with DJ growing up. We played summer baseball together. Uh, I always thought I was a better shortstop than him, so he can laugh <laughs> when he hears this. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I played second base. He played shortstop when he was uh, DH, and I got to play short. But DJ is probably the best player I ever played with. Wow. That's pretty sweet. Um, all right, so you're coming out of the pen mm-hmm. to close the game. Mm-hmm. What song do you want playing? What are you going with? Uh, I used to, it depends. If I was doing really well, I used to play Stand Up and Shout, uh, which is in the movie Rockstar, I believe, with Mark Absolutely. Wahlberg. Yeah. They play it at every wild game, too. <laughs> yep. So that was if I was doing really well. If I was doing really bad, it was Don't Stop Believing by Journey. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Which Houston Astros player do you plunk right now if you're pitching? Oh, Alex Bregman. Great choice. <laughs> Great choice. <laughs> All right, I got another one for you. Uh, Better route from the Twin Cities to Minnesota State University. 35E or 169? 169. My man. <laughs> uh, what else? So you're going to your dinner spot, your, your go-to dinner spot. Yep. What are you ordering? And my, where is it? My go-to dinner spot. Wow. Uh, 
this has been this has been completely adjusted since COVID times. But uh, I live over in Prior Lake, so we always take the boat over to Charlie's, and I get a chicken sandwich. Uh, and for some reason, they put this like honey glaze on their chicken sandwiches and for uh-huh. like i said in the last five months or so that's made me like addicted to that sandwich so if i'm ever going out i don't eat out much but if i ever eat out i always eat the chicken sandwich at charlie's on prior ha huh, i can't yeah i've never been there you've been there i've not but now i'm ready yeah it's a great chicken sandwich boys yeah we'll have to check it out um last one you could travel to one place in the world tomorrow where are you going i'm going to a Oh man, I'm going to Finland. It's a toss up between Costa Rica or Finland, but I'm going to Finland really? tomorrow. That's freaking awesome, man. I'm like You 80%. should have seen Luther's face here. His, his <laughs> eyes just lit up cuz he's Finnish. <laughs> oh, I'm, let's eight, go. I'm like 85% Finnish, man. Yeah. However that math works. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Well, yeah, and I want I want to go over there. Yeah, I, I still haven't been over there, so I got to I got to knock that off the list too. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm glad I asked that one. Um. All right. So that's it for the warm up. Let's. Uh, I wanna. I wanna talk to you about your playing career and like your background. Where are you from? Like, where'd you go to high school? Yeah. So I went to uh, Farmington High School, which is right outside Detroit, Michigan. So I grew up in Michigan, moved to Ohio, played high school baseball in Ohio for a year, and then I moved back to Michigan, where I settled in at Farmington, graduated from there and then ended up playing at Central Michigan originally. So that was kind of the early days routes, I suppose. Okay. And then how did you end up at Mankato or Minnesota State? Yeah, I don't know if you would know. There was a guy, Ben Kincaid. He's now the head coach at Wisconsin Stout. But we were playing in the Northwoods League in 2000, it was 2011, I believe. And so – in 2011, I had played four years at Central, and I still have a great relationship with Central Michigan. Great, They had an awesome year last year, which was super fun, too. Okay, so you went to Central Michigan out of yep. high school. Is that yep. D1 baseball? Yep, yep D1. Okay. They, they went to the regionals last year, won their conference. They're a very good program up in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. And so we went. I went there, and I had some surgeries. And when I was playing summer baseball in the Northwoods League in Eau Claire, I met a guy, Ben Kincaid, who was at Mankato. And that was like the first year, I think, it was either that year or the year before they made that uh, D1 to D2 transfer rule. So you had to transfer to a Division two. I don't yeah, know if that's below, still the right? rule. Yeah, I don't know if that's still the way it is, but okay. that was the way it was when I was playing. And uh, I just became really good friends with Benny. And I just kind of got pushed out when I was at CMU when I was getting uh, – I had Tommy John. I came back, and I tell guys this now. I came back, and they brought in – I was a closer – they brought in a lefty and righty closer, and the lefty ended up playing in the big leagues, and the righty went to double A, and <laughs> I was uh, just kind of out of luck. So I needed to get innings to try to sign and play professionally, and that was – I started weighing my options and left CMU in 2011 and transferred to Minnesota State, and that's what brought me here. Okay, and then you had a pretty outstanding – what was it? I guess fifth-year senior year at Mankato. Yep. yep. All-American, um, and then you got signed to play professionally for the Brewers. Is that correct? Yep. I was. Uh, I went to Mankato for two years and uh, played there my fifth and sixth year, and then I signed with Milwaukee in 2013. Okay, and that was just like a free agent deal? Yep, free agent deal, late. Yeah, obviously that whole deal missed the, missed the rounds, but it was, a, it was a good setup. How does that process work uh, when you're a free agent? Do they contact you or are you reaching out? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's actually 
it's that was a wild time, and I think uh, I think a lot of baseball players who have really good college careers they experience this uh, when they're older in college, and that was really the first time that I got to understand what age and injury does in terms of the draft process. So I went to Mankato. I was a pretty high draft prospect, or at least I'd like to think so, but I was a pretty solid thinking I was going to get drafted early in my college career. I thought I was going to get some good slot money and leave college early. I thought I had potential to do that. I ran into some injuries. When I went to Mankato, I was a, I had had a medical red shirt and a regular red shirt. So I really was not playing and consistently until my fifth year of college. So I would have had to have been 21, 22 or so. I think I signed when I was 23. So that's going to pay a huge, you guys know, like that's going to be really poor on your draft stock. And so my fifth year, I was an All-American. And my sixth year, I was National Pitcher of the Year. And what was interesting about that was we went to the National Championship that year and we lost in the championship game. And leading up to the College World Series, I I had been told there were a couple teams who told me I was going to go in the top ten rounds, and like wow. you know verbally, visually, handshake deals. It mm-hmm. was a really cool moment. And and thinking back to that day, actually, I remember the night before the draft. So I don't know how they do it now, but it was the they did the first and second round or first three rounds. I can't remember how it went. It was like the first three rounds. And then the day two was four to 10. And then day three was 11 to 40. And I had heard from the Detroit Tigers specifically, um, a couple other teams reached out as well. But I remember the Tigers were a big team that was on my radar. But point is the day before the draft, they had said, you know, sit close to your phone on day two. You're pretty much a shoe. A couple teams had told me I was a shoe in ninth to 10th round pick. And, uh, and that was a weird moment to go through because day two came and I never heard from anybody. I didn't hear from my advisor. I didn't hear from any scouts. Uh, my college coaches were just sort of checking in with me to see how I was doing mentally, uh, the family, and we got really quiet, obviously. And then that was a weird night of sleep, but I thought, you know, maybe I'll just go in the 11th or 12th round on day three. Yeah. And so day three happens and I watched the draft for the first maybe five, seven rounds or so. And then I remember once it got to the 17th round, I stopped watching. And I remember that I never watched really the draft after that. And I I went out, I mean, I was hanging out with my family. I was living in Northern Michigan at the time. And we, uh, you know, we, we just hung out as a family. I remember it was a really weird, awkward day on that third day of the draft and the phone didn't ring. And it was really cool slash weird because I remember my mom had been secretly watching the draft the whole yeah. day and <laughs> uh-huh. I wasn't watching the draft and I had made it a point to not watch the draft or have anyone talk to me about it, but I could tell I wasn't getting drafted because my mom was getting more emotional throughout the you day. Just reader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and so, and so I remember you know, like I said, I was a two-time All-American and I was a National Pitcher of the Year and I'd had a really good college year. I had great numbers in the Northwoods League. We had won it one of the years I was playing there. I had really good Division One numbers, probably better numbers in the Division One than Division Two, And I had a great career. I'd thrown like 300 innings or so. It was something ridiculous like that. And I had done really well. And I had heard from over 20 teams before the draft. So I, all my friends from home wanted to have a draft party for me. And now I was a six year senior. I kind of knew these things could happen. So I remember not going to this draft party that was played on for me. And, uh, how, what, (laughs) what, what happened was, uh, after the 40th round, 
Um, it was a weird day, as you can imagine. You, 40 rounds goes by, you don't get drafted. It's kind of a, a weird moment. I was with uh, my girlfriend at the time, my sister, her, uh, her boyfriend, and my parents. And we just kind of all sat there and stared at each other. And I was like, hey, I'm going to go salvage this evening. And I'm going to chalk up my career. I had made a decision I was never going to play independent ball. So for your listeners, okay. uh, you know, independent ball is a non-affiliated professional baseball league. I had don't made, pay you much, yeah, well, they nor does the minor much. leagues either. But. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I had made the decision that if I did not play affiliated baseball, I was going to move on with life. And so when the 40th round went by, I had not thought about free agency, as you can imagine. It just didn't, it wasn't on my radar. So right. I, I remember that evening, I had told my folks, I'm just going to go and party with my buddies and, you know, celebrate a really fun career. I had a great college experience. And within the first 10 minutes of the draft ending, it was so weird. I had three different calls uh, from different parts of the country. And anyone who's sitting there across any sport on draft day, if you get a big city random number calling you, that's a great sign. You know, mm -hmm. and so uh, three cities called me from around the country. They were all independent teams. And uh, I, re <laughs> I remember saying no to all three of them. And my parents and my girlfriend at the time, like I said, and, and my sister, like everyone got super sad because I was I was stuck in my ways if I'm not going to play baseball. So I remember that being a really hard moment for my family thinking, wow, he's for real. He's giving up baseball like he's retiring. And uh, probably 30, 40 minutes later, the Milwaukee Brewers, Drew Anderson, who's still a very good friend of mine, he's a national cross checker with Milwaukee. He called me. And uh, the second he said Milwaukee Brewers, I never heard what he said after that, which him and I still <laughs> laugh about. I just said, yes, I'll sign. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, we, and we took it from there. The, probably two days later, I was on a flight, and it was like nothing different than a draft pick. So they signed me as a free agent. They offered me pretty much no money as a signing bonus. Uh, they brought me out. I was in minicamp, you know, two, three days after the draft started, and I was competing with all of their draft picks. And I was actually the first person that was called up from our minicamp to play full season A ball. And that was a pretty cool moment. But it was also, you know, I remember Nate Orff played in the big leagues. He was a free agent out of Baylor, a very good friend of mine. Uh, we both went into camp as free agent senior signs. He ended up making it, obviously, all the way to the big leagues. And then I, I kind of got let go a few years later. But as, as far as the free agency deal, the best way I could explain that is it's just like the wild, wild west. You know, you're kind of in no man's land. You can sign at any point. Like you can basically get, I could get a call today if I was good enough, you know, and they can, it's like a negotiation factor. I could have said in that moment, uh, no, I want $100,000. And they would have said, well, thank you for, you know, 10 minutes of our time and see you later. <laughs> and by the way, I'm still waiting for my call. Yeah, there you go. We all got to play long toss more. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's um, a simple process. Yeah, so you're you're in the minors now. Did you enjoy playing minor league ball? Um, wow, uh, that's a. It, I mean, I know it's a grind. I know there's yeah. long bus rides. I know the pay is low. I know you know there's some negatives attached to it. But obviously, you get to, you know, you're getting paid to play baseball, which is awesome as well. Yeah, it is awesome. Like, I think there's many ways that you could look at that. And when I look at it now, I'm six years removed from playing minor league baseball. So I look at it entirely different than I did, you know, then. three years ago and a year, a year after and even when I was in it. Yeah. Uh, so when I answer that in terms of today, you know, it happens so quickly. 
and your mindset, at least in my case, was so different compared to college that I never actually, I don't think I personally ever enjoyed it to the capacity in which I could have. Uh, uh -huh. You know, when I was in college, I really loved college. I was a guy who, I was very coachable, uh, was very about the boys, you know. Social. Yeah, yep. social, and, and I really thoroughly enjoyed being best friends with my, like truly best friends with my teammates and uh, watching success for them and those sort of things. Whereas when you get to pro ball, I tell the story very often, my first professional baseball game I ever played in. Now, keep in mind, I played college baseball for six years, which is uh, is miserable in its own sense. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I was in a college system for six years. I was in that regimented practice, that, that scheming, that coaching, that class setting. I was in that schedule, if you will. And so when I got to pro ball, I was such a college-type mindset-type player yeah. That the first game we played in, I remember we scored a run. We were in somewhere in Montana, and there was like four or 5,000 people there, and our team scored a run. And I remember I got off the bench uh, uh -oh. as a pitcher and <laughs> went to go shake the guy's hand, and I was like, yeah, like, great work. And <laughs> I turned around, and there was a – I won't say his name, but uh, oh boy. there was an 18-year-old high school draft pick who signed for like 1.5 or 2 mil or something along those lines. And I remember him laughing at me. And going, and now I'm 23. This kid's 18, you know. And, and this kid, this kid says to me, he goes, "Hey, man, uh, leave college behind, brother." He goes, "This is pro ball. We uh, we don't get up and shake each other's hands. We don't cheer each other on." And I remember that was such a wow. earth-shattering moment for me. Yeah. Uh, that that was very devastating. So I mean, for some people, I think you know the the storybook Bull Durham side of minor league baseball i'm very glad that i took part in that i'm very glad that i have some fun stories for myself and my family and that is very special that obviously wearing a major league logo in spring training is very cool i'm not going to deny those things but and when i look back at it now i think that it was so uh i was so trying to survive that i never actually took it in if that makes sense yeah well i think that's you know, if you're going to make it, yeah. I feel like you really have to enjoy the process, you know, in anything, like whatever mm -hmm. endeavor you choose. And like, I got a, I got a small taste myself of minor league, like independent baseball yeah. for like a couple of weeks. And, um, I'm fortunate to say that I got paid to play baseball, but on the same token, I never fully enjoyed it and committed to it and like believed in it. And that's yeah. why I, you know, chose to go play amateur ball instead. Cause I had yeah. more fun doing that. Yeah. You know, and that's just, I think that's where it ended for me personally. And I'm curious to get your take. Is that like, what, how did you end up like getting out of minor league ball or, or retiring? Yeah. So I went to, well, for one, I was in a ball for three years. So I was, uh, my joke to that one is if you, if your name is recognized at local diners in minor league baseball, you're, you're not going to be playing in the big leagues. <laughs> you know, so I was, uh, you know, you've been I, there too yeah. long as that <laughs> Yeah, so I had yeah, been in the good. same I had been in the same town for three years. So hey, I mean, what's up, Harvey? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Harvey, how's everything going? Whenever hey, hey, hey. there's two ways, you know you're not going to make it to the big leagues. One, the local diner waitresses or waiters know who you are, and then two, <laughs> you're asked to do all the in between inning advertisement stuff. Whenever you're the player that is having to do, <laughs> he's going to be around a while. Yeah, yeah. Anytime you're doing the long, you're trying to entertain the fans. I'm thinking uh, of Will Ferrell and semi-pro. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah anytime, anytime you were that guy, uh, you're probably not. You're probably not going to move up the ladder. So, 
my way of going out was my last year. I left for spring training in 2000, I think it was 15, and I was 26. I was back in A-ball, and they had just flat out told me, they were like, you, we have a lot of young guys. You're a clubhouse guy. You're a leader in the organization. We want you to oversee our younger players. And I had, I was sort of battling some injuries and it was, it was really like a handshake uh, agreement that they were going to keep me in the organization until, and see if I survived. And if I didn't survive, I was probably going to be done middle of the summer and I obviously didn't survive. And so they, they let me go after the draft, but it was, uh, it was a really cool thing. You know, I talk about the Milwaukee, I still do some work with the Milwaukee Brewers and they've been really great organization and people think about the cutthroat side of professional sports. When I got released, uh, Matty Erickson, who is my manager, uh, and Gary Lucas, our pitching coach, Chucky Caulfield, like some great humans, they, we actually just all went out to breakfast for the day that I got released. And uh, at the end of it, they just we all kind of hugged and said it was a great journey, and, and that the rest was history. I never played again. But uh, I, I, knew, I saw the writing on the wall like months before I actually left. Hey, from the outside looking in, a guy like me, I got to tell you, man, you've still made it further than 99.9% of people. <laughs> yeah. And that's damn impressive. So, And I know I, I imagine you look at it like that. But from my perspective, man, you killed it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, it was, I, definitely don't, I definitely don't take it for granted. It's a, it was a very cool experience. So, hey, I think – so we're going to talk, too, about – like some breath training that mm -hmm. you do, which is yep. pretty incredible. Yeah. And I'm especially interested because I'm watching my microphone as I don't talk mm -hmm. and it's picking up my breath pretty, <laughs> pretty substantially. So I think sure. I can benefit from this. Anyway, I thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty nice transition. So what, you know, with the whole mind strong thing, how did that evolve in, you know, post career now? Like what, what prompted that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, when I was, like I said, we'll go, I'll, I'll be able to answer that pretty quickly. And, and, but I'll, you have to understand this side of it to get the full answer. Yeah, absolutely. That. So when I went to Mankato, they were opening up a sports psychology department called the center. And like I said, I was in college for a few years longer than I wanted to be. So I, I, I fortunately slash unfortunately was in grad school. So it was more fortunate for me because I'd never planned on getting a master's degree. It just was that I was in college for so long that I had to take grad classes. And when I was in these graduate classes, uh, as you guys know, baseball is huge into mental, the mental game, the mental skills, these sort of things. And hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what it was intriguing to me because I was learning mental skills, a little bit of breathing, not much when I was in high school. And then the same situation in college, we touched on it. Like, I think it was more of a, let's just feel good that we touch on the mental skills and then some breathing, but then let's not really focus on it. And yeah. then when I got to Mankato, they were the first place that they literally focused on mental training. I mean, we were in the classroom every week. Uh, I used to go on my own and work with sports psychiatrists and I would, I would learn about psychology. And then at the same time I was in uh, psychological sports psych classes at the master's degree level who where everybody in my class wanted to be a college teacher or college coach and teach psychology where I wanted to play major league baseball and I was mm -hmm. using psychology as my edge. It was more of a, okay, well I can just kill two birds with one stone type deal. I can be in class learning mental skills and then go to practice and I have an edge over everybody, which I firmly believe was an did. edge. Yeah. And I That's do. interesting. Yeah. Really and I, interesting. Yeah. And so I chose my classes based off of, well, I can go sit in class and actually learn psychology and I'm going to do that. And so I did that 
And one of the things that was always brought up was breath. Now it was not, I didn't know that I'd be doing what I do now then, but breath was something that, that was talked about enough for me to ask enough questions is the way that I look at it. So then I go to pro ball and I've always been a cerebral, like human. I've always been curious. I've always been a question asker, even when I was a little kid, it's always sort of been something that's my characteristic or my traits, if you will. And so when Mm -hmm. I got to professional baseball, I just found myself uh, talking to the psychiatrist or the sports psych department out of pure curiosity. I wasn't necessarily looking at it as I needed help or I did need help. I didn't think of it like that. I just always thought this is really fascinating. And the reason why it was so fascinating to me was because it was a puzzle. Like I couldn't figure out the puzzle. Like it wasn't making sense. And how I asked uh, sports psych teachers this or coaches this or even coaches and strength coaches all the time was why is it that if you have me lift in the weight room and I'll use this analogy because I use this one often and it's and I bench 135 and four weeks later I'm benching 155 and I don't care the research the strength and conditioning coach I don't care what anyone says to be right or wrong I grew so I keep going back to the weight room You know, like I used to always say, the people who are awesome hard workers are just hard workers because they're better at lifting weights than the people who aren't, you know, and so they just, I was finding that progress was sort of the, the end all be all for all humans. If a guy threw harder, he was really excited to pitch. And if he kept throwing harder and weighted balls were doing it, then he wanted to do more weighted balls. And whether he thought it was scientifically backed or not, the athlete just wanted progress. They wanted As long as they see those numbers. Right. Everybody wants to grow. Yeah. Everyone wants to grow. And that was something that I used to ask all the time. I used to ask my coaches that all the time. Why do we do mental skills? I understand we just pound in the importance, but what actually grew? Like, did my, is my mind bigger? Is your concentration getting better? How can you measure that? hundred percent. And so I used to always ask that. And I was frustrated with the fact that I couldn't figure that out. So when I got released, Uh, the first thing that I started doing after I got released was I actually met a guy, a a very good friend of mine now, but he was a yogi and I had hung out with zero yogis to this point in my life. And so, uh, I meet this guy and he tells me that in the yoga community and his community, they do a lot of breath work and he goes off like it was such a magical experience in his mind, right? He goes, you can breathe your immunity up, you can uh, handle cold weather, you can strengthen your cell system, you can improve your aerobic capacity, your mind is clear. And I'm sitting there going, (laughs) dude, how are you going to teach me this? I just played professional baseball. I've got a master's degree. Like, who are you, you know? And, and what was cool was, but he was so, uh, believable that I went, well, I'm going to try this. And so the story goes that in 2015, I would do a breath practice from a guy named Wim Hof, who's out of the Netherlands or out of Poland, I believe a European guy. He's made breathing really famous and whatnot. And so we did a breath practice every morning. I would do it uh, at early before any of my roommates woke up, because I didn't want you guys to know the sports world. Like if you're caught meditating, you're just, you're getting kicked out of the clubhouse, <laughs> you know. So yeah, no doubt, man. Yeah, I'm, maybe not I'm as in, bad anymore. I'm yeah, in the same boat. Like I meditate yeah. sometimes, and I yeah. it's like I don't really want to. Is that what you call it. it, Luther? Meditating? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I I tried to keep it quiet. And what the challenge was was I did the the breathing because I have never I've had 
you know, call it how it is. I've always had somewhat of a seasonal depression in the winter and I lived in the North. And so it was something I couldn't really avoid. And Feel I, ya. yeah, I and, went I, to there too. yeah and, I, and this guy was telling me like I could handle the cold if I got into the cold and I needed to learn the breath so that I could handle the cold. And so I tell the guy, okay, let's do it. And so every morning I would wake up and I didn't tell a soul. I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell my friends. I didn't tell anybody anything. And I did for 16 weeks every single day. I literally didn't miss a day for the entire 16 weeks. And I have that mindset like most professional athletes do. Like when you set a goal, you're just addicted to it and you'll just do it. Right. And so that's what I was doing. And uh, I would do this hyperventilation technique, which I can explain to you guys on this conversation. But I did that for 16 weeks and I would take a freezing cold shower right after that. And I hated it the entire time. And probably, you know, four, five, six, seven weeks into it, it started getting easier my breathing started getting better. I actually did feel more energy. I actually was having higher endurance and VO2 max and all these types of weight room things were increasing. My mind was feeling clear. All these things that this guy was saying. And I remember the challenge was, could I sit in Lake Minnetonka right before Christmas, December 15th for seven minutes and control my breathing and handle the cold? That was like my personal challenge. And so I did that and we, we took it to December 15th or December 23rd, I think is kind of the date that we kind of try to land on for remembering this. But uh, we went to Lake Minnetonka. I sat in Lake Minnetonka for seven minutes. I'd been training for it and it was the most like present moment that I had felt. And it was the first time that I actually comprehended breathing, controlling the autonomic nervous system, taking breath control, using your vision, using all these senses and feedback loops to my subjective mind or my subconscious consciousness, if you will, it made sense. And the, the rest is history. I mean, I really spent, I basically in 2015, that winter, I went, I'm going to figure out how to make mental performance, uh, human performance progressive. I'm going to do it through physiology, which is through the breath. And I'm going to teach athletes how to change state in and out of arousal, uh, in and out of uh, sympathetic, parasympathetic gearing systems, how to sleep, how to downshift, how to upshift, how to do all these things. And uh, I mean, since then, I've traveled around the world to learn from some of the, I have learned from some of the best breathing coaches. I've, I mean, obviously I've done a lot of certifications and those sort of things. And I've dedicated my entire practice towards how can I get you to understand the moment, not through your psychology, but through your physiology. Can you pick up on right now what your breathing is telling you about how you're perceiving the environment? And that is very doable, uh, very teachable. It's a tangible skill that you can 100% progress and you can actually see it progress. And you do that through environmental stress. So whether that's heat, cold, breath holding, uh, breath holding while you strength train, all these sort of things that we can dive into, the mechanics of it. What you do is, and this might not make sense, but what, what you do is you increase your body's ability to tolerate carbon dioxide, which is stress. And your brain stem, your primal part of your brain that controls the motor skills, controls the critical thinking, controls all these sort of situations, which is mental game, mental performance, and all, however you want to call it, is actually delivered to your entire system by your ability to control your breath rate and sustain higher levels of carbon dioxide within your system, which allows you to offload oxygen, which makes you the highest, in my opinion, what I tell people, the highest competitive athletic performer in real time. So that's what I teach. That's what I learned. Uh, and it's a, it's a really cool in my, in, it's a really cool way, the way in which we train and teach people how to use their breath 
in their physiology to control their psychology. That's awesome, man. Holy I got it. Did you get shit. it? You got it, didn't you? <laughs> that was impressive. <laughs> that is, that's compelling. I got it. Well, so I'm curious, can you measure that? You know, you talk about, can you measure like oxygen levels, you know, mm -hmm. carbon dioxide levels, stuff that you were just talking about. And we talked about, all right, you can measure going from 91 to 94 yeah. velo. Yeah. Can you measure my oxygen level was X number and now it's Y? Uh, yes, 100%. So um, you can, uh, the best way, uh, the best way to answer this is like, have you guys ever been to a hospital or doctors and they put a pulse meter on your finger and show yep. your oxygen saturation? Two yep. weeks ago I was. Yes. <laughs> yes. Do you remember what you were? Dude, I like sit low. Like I was at like 42 or 43 on your SPO, your oxygen saturation. Nah, oh, talking, not the oxygen. I was talking Oh Pulse. yeah, yeah. So I don't remember my oxygen levels. Though. Okay, so next time you do that, you want to look at that, right? And you can go anybody can, and this is going to be good for a baseball audience or an athletic audience, whatever. But uh, anybody can go to like a local Walgreens or a CVS or anything. You can buy a very cheap nice oxygen pulse oximeter and it basically will measure the spo2 the saturation of your oxygen within your system now unless you have like massive health uh underlying issues which most people don't so majority if we're talking about general huge population here everybody is going to have oxygen of 95 to 99 percent saturation in their body so what people need to understand very clearly about breath control and why this should be the pillar of your performance is that that right there tells you that taking a big breath or thinking you need to bring in more oxygen to calm down the intuitive or innate like hey man take a big deep breath and you see these guys take these big shoulder breaths through their mouth trying to get oxygen in it's completely not accurate and you can prove that to yourself by putting a pulse meter on because you're going to find out very quickly that you have oxygen so what people need to understand is that you're actually trying to improve your ability to breathe less. And by breathing less, you stop getting rid of so much carbon dioxide. So you need to think of it. When I breathe in, I breathe in O2. When I breathe out, I breathe out CO2. The more that I breathe, the more CO2 I get rid of. And the more CO2 that I get rid of, the less I will use of that 95 to 99% oxygen that's already in my body. So when you are a poor breather, you overbreathe. When you breathe into the microphone or you hear yourself breathing, <laughs> no uh, offense taken. Yeah, yeah. When you do all these, when you do all these sort of things, you're getting rid of CO2 in your body. And as you get rid of this CO2, your oxygen molecules they stop offloading into your muscle tissue. This is why, like players, report back by saying, uh, "Yeah, I just felt frozen." Uh, my arms, you know, my, it wasn't coming out my hand as fast as it used to. Or I just feel like I'm not being able to see the ball. I feel like I'm not running as fast or I'm not recovering as well. Well, 100% you're not because you're a poor breather. And when you're a bad breather, the first thing that goes in the human body is our motor skills. So if we are having low levels of carbon dioxide in our system, we need to provide oxygen to the organs and to the brain. So everything is going to stay internal in what sports is played with is extremities. So in nature, you can cut off my arm, but if you take out my heart, I'm, it's over. You know, mm -hmm. like if you yeah. cut off my feet, but you take off my head, it's over. So we're going to always default to nature. We're going to always default to getting rid of the weak, right? Which is going to be your hands, your feet, your, what you use sports to play with. And it's going to keep your organs intact. And this is why you see 
the performer who starts breathing really fast and conditioning, the person whose mouth, I mean, anyone can go on who's listening to this and just Google a tired runner. Google runner who's tired, type that into your Google page. Yeah, they're tripping over their jaw. Yeah, look at your images, and the first thing that's going to happen is every single one of them is going to be breathing through their mouth, and they're pretty much going to be squinting their eyes or closing their eyes. And that is because the physiological triggers to how you see and think in the moment is through your breath and your vision. And so when your breathing becomes too much uh, or breathing through your mouth or your vision becomes narrow, claustrophobic feeling, if you will, that is gonna tell the mind that this environment is no longer safe. And mm-hmm. so the mind is gonna go, all right, shut off the motor skills because we gotta get rid of those. We gotta protect in-house. You know, then <laughs> I it's just gonna... Googled tired runner, you uh, nailed it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's an interesting thing to study, right? And, uh, and so that's what we need to kind of look at. We need to actually look at breathing less. And this is why I teach people to breathe through your nose instead of through your mouth. Train yourself to breathe through your nose. And anyone who's listening to this can goes, well, how do I start? What do I do? The Literally, the only thing you want to start with is practice breathing through your nose the entire day uh, in everything that you do. Uh, just, just be conscious breathing. of it. Yeah, just be conscious of breathing through your nose. That's the best thing that people could start doing. Uh, but I think that that's so, is that cor- sort of making sense to you guys? Absolutely. Yeah, so, it's, it's coming together. D- if you breathe through your nose all day, you can't talk. So I think I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah. So this is like the uh, talking and eating is the only time that I'll, I'll, I tell people to breathe through their mouth. And uh, that's completely fine. But think of it as uh, teachers, coaches, salespeople, people yep. who talk all day. Right. And they're on. They're on fire. Right. But what are you doing? You're talking and getting rid of carbon dioxide faster than other people. So you're that's super, interesting. Yeah. You're super fatigued at the end of the day. This is why, uh, you know, sale in the sales community they're very stressful and reactive in things like rush hour. But at the same time, they were getting rid of CO2 the entire day by talking over and over and over and over again that they can't be responsive outside of their job because their their fuel systems, their energy systems and sugar and glycogen, all that stuff uh, is burnt because they've gotten rid of too much CO2 by over talking and now they're reactive humans. I just mm-hmm. had an epiphany. <laughs> because I am a salesperson. Okay. And I do talk a lot at work. Mm-hmm. And honestly, everything you said happens to me. I'm so done by the end of the day. Yeah. Mentally. And that's incredible. And you articulated that really well because that's some high level stuff. But that's, uh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, On a broader scale, I just want to ask you this because I think of times in my career or athletic career where like I've been successful and I felt confident. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that comes to mind is like, I'm very relaxed in Mm -hmm. those situations. Like I just feel like, all right, I got this. And apparently I was probably breathing properly and through my nose and whatever. And like, then I ended up ultimately delivering, you know, in a certain situation and Mm -hmm. is relaxation like correlated to that? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you look at, uh, like another fun thing to study is the jaw structures. So, I mean, I don't, I mean, I can't see you guys, but like, look at each other, look at your jaw, look at your teeth, look at your nostrils. You know, that tells you a lot about how someone breathes. Like, are they breathing into their neck, into their shoulders, or are they able to breathe horizontally and low at the bottom of the rib cage and somewhat into the belly? You know, like, are they, are they breathing into the chest or are they breathing below the chest? And that's going to tell you a lot about your physiology. So, Uh, You know, if you study major league all-stars, like true actual stud 
John Carlos Stanton's or yeah, look at his judges. Jaw, look at his jaw. Look at both those guys' jaws and their nostrils. And whether they have any breath work or not, there's a reason why they're at the top of the food chain. So they have uh, an advantage right out of the gate. Yep, they just right? have better jaw structure. They have uh, better t- alignment of their teeth. You know, it's very, very well documented, very well documented that the human jaw structure changed to a narrow, open mouth breather within the last 300 years. And so that tells you that, I mean, it's, I always tell this to people, a Neanderthal never had a dentist. And if you study the jaw structure of our ancestors, they had straight teeth. And how is it that the modern man no longer has straight teeth? Well, the modern man no longer has to stress their breath. You know, there is no extreme in terms of breathing. You're inside artificial homes and light exposure. You're in 68, 72 degrees the entire day. There is no reason to have to stress your breathing anymore. You don't have to mm-hmm. change state. So that's interesting. Yeah, and so the you're jaws a- have automatically changed. in more of a homeostasis type of state. Yep, and so you see this across the board. It's just unfortunate. Like I, by trade, am a mouth breather and a very bad breather, and I paid a heavy price for many years and with illnesses and sicknesses and those sort of things. Whereas, uh, you know, some people are just better than other people. Like Stanton and Judge, the two names that you use, look at their jaw structure and then go study. Uh, minor league, fifth year, six year seniors who are going to be released in a year. You know, it's, it's funny you say that because we we actually have a buddy who he especially the cheap seats up top. Yeah, were pretty bad. I mean, he he could floss by taking a deep breath in. Yeah, and he fixed his teeth. And I'm interested now to ask him if he noticed. Well, obviously at this point it would have been subconscious, but if he noticed a difference mm-hmm. in maybe his performance, he actually played some high level Division one sports. So interesting. Thought I'd interject. Yeah, as you were. No, yeah, for sure. Stuff. Yeah. Um, so I want to, before we wrap up, I want to talk about mindset too, because I know that that's a big thing that you teach as mm-hmm. well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what, like, what are some of the things, like, key points that, that you teach when it comes to mindset? I know we can go deep on it, but. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I break everything down into three pillars, whether this is right or wrong. This is just how I, this is how I organize my content. <laughs> so. Uh, I put it as the first thing that if I'm ever talking to an athlete or an organization, when I, when I'm talking to you, the first thing is actually always your mindset, obviously, because that controls the entire system, but that would be entirely subjective. So when I look at pillar one, it's self-awareness and it's subjectivity, which means that neither nothing's good or bad. It's just perception, right? Whereas pillar two is objective through choice making. So I can see how you make choices. I can see your behavior. You know, I can see these sort of things. And then uh, pillar three is your energy and sense of uh, your senses, not energy like you're happy, positive, these sort of things. Energy truly in the sense of uh, your feedback loops to your self-awareness through your vision, your hearing, your touch, those sort of things. And that tells you a lot about your mindset. So like I said, when you're over breathing, Uh, When you breathe very quickly, the first thing that goes is your ability to solve problems and emotional reactivity goes up. This is why, like, if you ask a pitcher who covers the wrong base, if you look at him and go, what were you thinking? And you did practice, he's practiced that millions of times. And you ask him a question and he can't respond, right? Have you guys experienced this? Maybe not even in baseball, but just where you've asked somebody a question that you know they know the answer to but they can't answer it. Brain fart. Yeah, and that is a due to high respiration. So basically when you start breathing very quickly, 
your ability to subjectively or consciously make choices is going to diminish and your emotional regulation is going to deplete. So you're going to become emotionally reactive, right? This is why people lash out, right? This is why young kids uh, lash out for attention and these sort of things. But to focus on the mind in general, it's entirely subjective. So what I mean by that is that you and I are not necessarily on the same page nor ever on the same page on what we perceive as what's good and what's bad. But what we mm-hmm. can be aware of with our psychology is that we are built to survive. Like it's pretty well known. Like we are a negative species and which is built for positive reasons. Like we should fear crossing the road without someone having to teach us that, you know, like we should right. fear certain things. And that is built in our hardwiring and our biology, which we need. So the brain is, is sent into four triggering systems of psychological survival warfare. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about those because I know you're pretty big on those. Yeah, and so I break it down into uncertainty, uh, change, attention, and struggle. And so if you go through those categories, you're going to have any four of those are happening all the time, basically. And what you're always going to default to because your system defaults to freeze or flight, we think that it defaults to fight, but it doesn't necessarily. You will always default to avoidance. So when I talk to people about their mindset, it's more so of asking questions because uh, I got to try to get you to become aware of what triggers or barriers are in your way. Is that it, cause you to avoid things? Yes. And right? that's that's kind of what you might not say those four things, but I can hear those four things within the questions I'm going to ask you. And as okay, I figure gotcha. that out, now we can kind of create some sort of system. Okay. Hey, so I got another quick question for you. Yeah. About a minute or two ago, you were talking about the way that respiration affects your mental capacity. Mm-hmm. There's a TV show on where they feed people all, all sorts of hot wings and hot foods. Yeah. And then they ask them simple questions. Yeah. And the people can't answer them. Mm-hmm. And you just made me come full circle and think that that heat obviously is going to change the way you breathe and control yourself. And I've seen that mm-hmm. in, in the, you know, on TV, which is really, really interesting. Yeah. A lot of this stuff comes full circle. It's crazy. Hey, another thing too, I don't mean to cut you off, but no, no. W- when we talk about your business and who you work with, do mm-hmm. you work with the average Joe or are you just high end sports guy? Uh, yeah, that's, I pretty much work with, I would say 90% of my clients are in the NHL, uh, the NFL or the major league. So I have a few people outside of that, that, uh, I've worked with for a long time and sure. uh, I kind of honor that. And, and we do, we have a great relationship. Uh, I do stuff with a lot of colleges and the professional organizations. I've primarily focus in the professional world. I've done sure. stuff outside of that i'd like to do more of that it's kind of why i have an online uh, membership so i can reach more people uh but yeah for the most part i i specifically train and specialize in professional sports i can't fault you for that that's where the dough is at anyway right (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) so the last thing i wanted to ask you about and i because i think it's just important you know no matter where you are in life and i was reading your your web page and this was something that jumped out to me was the importance of goal setting and just mm-hmm. having something to aim for yeah. in life, wherever you are. Can you touch on that? And just as far as mindset goes? Yeah. So I think like the, as far as goal setting goes, it, it's, it's incredibly important. Like, and, and, and what we need to look at that is that's, again, that's, that's biology. You know, I, I try to make my decisions I, in my personal philosophy, I try to base them off of like what a caveman would do, right? If it doesn't make sense, if it puzzles a caveman, then you shouldn't do it. You know, it's like as simple as nutrition. I I get the craziest questions about nutrition 
and it, people will go, well, should I eat this or do that or do that? And I go, would that, would gummy bears puzzle a caveman, you know, uh, then don't eat them. You know, it's like that simple. Like, it's like things that like sugar and pop and all these sort of that puzzle right. caveman, it's probably just not good for you. So when we look at goals, we need to actually dumb it down. Like you need to get it as simple as you possibly can. And so once we understand that, then we have to tiptoe into what makes the most sense. And so this is the essence of less is more, right? So, I mean, whenever I look at people and developing goals, establishing goals, uh, I don't ever direct you on the outcome. I always start, if I were with you guys or with somebody right now and I just met them, I would say, okay, what is the outcome? What is your career dream? What's your biggest, wildest dream? Okay, boom, there's the outcome. Now we write it. Now I have an idea of like your expectations. You can sort of see the behavioral change that you would need to someday have that, right? Now, the crazy thing that we have to comprehend right after that discussion is that when the day you get that, uh, it, it is it never actually what you actually want. You see this in pictures where I want to throw 90, but the day you throw 90 is the day you want to throw 91. So you don't right. actually want to throw 90. And that is a very, very hard, hard, simple concept that we need to comprehend first and foremost, that the reasoning behind that is because your biology needs growth. It needs progress. That is adaptation. That's survival of the fittest. This has been around since the beginning of time. So you need to look at what is the vision right now that I can feel in my soul that I can actually see myself changing and shifting behaviors that make me the person that I want to be. And then I need to get to the very simplest form of how can I tiptoe into that uh, daily, weekly, monthly, that will actually register in my biology as progress. And that is what is known as momentum. And anybody that you train, I, I am very fortunate to train and work with some of the best performers on the planet. I have a very amazing advisory board of people who are wicked smarter than me and very cool people. And, and what I have learned is that people at the highest level across any sort of spectrum are amazing at creating and sustaining momentum. And so the goal is never actually the goal. It's what thing gets you to get the ball rolling and then let that thing speed up and never necessarily look back. Hmm. Awesome. Create and sustain momentum. Mm -hmm. I, you know what I took from that? I always take one or two things from somebody we speak with. Yeah. And for whatever reason, this stuck. If it would confuse a caveman, don't do it. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yep. Awesome. It's just yep. awesome. <laughs> I love it. Uh, man, love we it. could go on for days, I'm sure. I mean, you're obviously a super knowledgeable guy, and we can – I know you talk, you know, more about – within your webpage, I was looking, you've got nutrition, you've got movement, sleep, the cold heat, change with breathing, mm -hmm. nature – bonfire actually i want to talk real quick let's mm -hmm. finish this with mm -hmm. with the bonfire thing that yeah. was interesting when i was reading that for sure uh yeah what are your thoughts on it <laughs> well it's it just like looking at a bonfire mm -hmm. the thing that stood out was like when you look at it it's like it's a part of nature and it just automatically like gets you into like a natural state where yeah. you kind of relax yep Right. Yep. So, yeah. So, I mean, my philosophy is living in accordance from in nature, you know, and I, I tell people that, and, and some people that I work with or have worked with, like things haven't worked out purely out of the fact that we just don't see things the way we Didn't see them. Jive. Yeah. Uh -huh. and, and that's all good. You know, like I look at it, 
Uh, I had a conversation last night over dinner with some very close friends of mine, and we were talking about modern society, modern science, modern technology, which is amazing, right? I'll go first on record by saying I'm a huge believer in technology and the advancement of it, and I love Evolution. That. Yes. Now, the issue with technology and problem solving is that it takes away, uh, it gives you the falsehood of comfort. Right. And so like every advantage or every evolutionary shift that we've made, we've lost a piece of biology. This is like the player who cannot sleep if their if their oral ring says it didn't register as good sleep. This is the baseball player who can't hit if the exit velo isn't where he thought it should be. And so now you have become a prisoner to the thing. Right. And so that's a bad thing. And you see this very often, like you see people are heavily into juve red light or cryotherapy and these sort of things, which is great. I use them. I love them. Huge proponent of it. But the issue with that is, you know, if you could just understand that vitamin D and sun exposure on as much skin as you possibly can have in the morning, then you don't need to go do juve red light. Now, if you sit in doors all day, then you might need to do that. Now, if we mm -hmm. go to the bonfire specifically, let's just look at it, right? Like the the bonfire was actually like the first technological advancement of human. Like that was built to keep you surviving and safe. So we've had that the technology for thousands and thousands of years. And that has equated to you as parasympathetic toning, which is the category of rest, digest, regeneration. And so if you are able to get your eyes on a bonfire, you're, now you're using those senses. Remember my pillar system, self-awareness, objective, and feedback loops through energy. If I'm by a fire, my auditory system, so the way that I'm hearing things, is hearing crackling and peace. That is actually gonna shift my nervous system to mm -hmm. regeneration and calm and digesting. So these are all positive. My vision, right, my vision is going to be seeing very clear colors of uh, tonage that kind of desettles me into a state of calm again and regeneration. So now my eyes, another sense, is going to grab that as well. And then the stillness factor of it and the ability that you built the fire is going to slow your breathing because you're gonna basically go at the pace of that fire through lower respiratory rate. So now you've used all this stuff naturally uh, to downshift your system and it'll actually do that. You know, And that's something that if I can change gears physiologically from sympathetic to parasympathetic in and out of those states, then I reap the benefits of you know, human advancement, actually, you actually become the technology. And so that's why I use a lot of things in those categories. And I actually look at it as a bonfire is your, your post night meal. That's your, that's your sleep alarm. That's your melatonin. And yeah. people find a lot of benefit through that. That's phenomenal, man. That's like super interesting. It's uh, you know what I, you know what else I, I realized in talking to you is that I haven't read nearly enough books. <laughs> My goodness. That was imp impressive as hell. <laughs> yeah, well, I just uh, hide. Man. I just hide and read. So I guess that's <laughs> yeah, well, we whatever look, works. We can look man, at it both ways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Sign me up. Sign yeah. me up. Love it. So tell tell us uh, where can we find you? What's the website if people are interested in signing up? Uh, for sure. More. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So our website is uh, just www.mindstrongproject.com. Uh, as you guys have kind of uh, looked at, you can read a lot of stuff. We I try to give as much free content as. Yeah, I and that's can. awesome, man. Like, yeah. if you guys don't sign up, like he gives away free stuff just oh, yeah. by reading, which is just incredible. Yep, and then like even on our email list, I put videos out every week that you can do if you subscribe to our email list. Uh, I have 
weekly newsletters where I basically teach you what I'm doing, what I did that week, what I'm teaching people to do. So you can kind of follow along, even if you don't want to be a member or whatnot, you can kind of learn a lot through it. Um, obviously you can get circuits through our meeting of our minds, our bookshelves, our podcasts that we do. We do a lot of webinars. We do a lot of, we try to get as much information as we possibly can in a way that people can understand. And then, uh, moving past that, we're on, you know, your Instagrams, your Twitters, your Facebooks, which is at just at the Mindstrong project. I think Twitter's Mindstrong P I always get yelled at from my buddy when I do these <laughs> and he says, you got to say it better, but, uh, it's the Mindstrong project on our social circuits and, we do the same thing on Instagram. My personal is at MartinTime15, uh, Harvey Martin. You guys can see that on stuff. I, I kind of use our business stuff to be very, you know, accurate. We try to show as a team. I don't really speak personally on that stuff as much as I do my personal circuits. On my personal circuits, you'll see a lot of my theories, philosophies, because obviously that's for me, you know, and how I train or how I come up with things or why I use a certain way. So you're going to get mm -hmm. similar language, but it'll be uh, a little bit different, if that makes sense. Okay. And then lastly, the podcast, wh where do we find that? Uh, yeah, we're just on iTunes. We should be on Spotify, all that stuff. Uh, just the Mindstrong Project podcast. You can get through that. I think we have Oh man, I don't know. I think we have, we've had a couple over a hundred, a few hundred guests on there. We do wow. coffee buzzes where I think we've done 65 or 70 of those. So, I mean, we got some work to do to catch up to you, man. <laughs> yeah. You'll see some, I, I interview a lot of people, a lot of really unique people. I'm, I try to, I have a lot of doctors on there, some entrepreneurs and coaches that are really fascinating and hopefully people can learn from those as well. Love to check it out. Yeah. Awesome, sure. man. Well, I appreciate your time and um, we'll stay in touch down the road here. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was awesome to have you on today. I appreciate it. Thank you guys very much. And obviously uh, the way we connected was rather cool. You guys are in a good circle of people and I appreciate what you guys are doing. So thank you for having me. Pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, man. Take care. Well. <laughs> that dude's a uh, pretty... Pretty smart. <laughs> oh, yeah. Christ. I was I was looking around. I don't have any books. <laughs> I need to start reading books, like, right away. And that dude, wow. <laughs> yeah, your little uh, shelf above the mantle has zero books on it. A lot of that stuff's really interesting. Uh, you know, you never think about it. Honestly, like, I didn't, I, I didn't think that was going to be boring by any means. But I didn't think it was going to be as interesting as it was. It gives you a lot to think about. Yeah, I mean, that dude, like... To, to me, like so many people have one, two, three specialties that they teach and that they know about. This dude freaking has his tentacles in a lot of different areas and he's just smart as a doggone whip. And I, I love how he said, I love how he said, like a lot of people that are smarter than me. And I'm like, dude, if there's people <laughs> out there that are way smarter than you, let me know because <laughs> I'm about 10 levels underneath that. That was just, that was cool stuff. I mean, I think what he does too resonates so much better with people I would imagine because of the clout he has of being a professional athlete in a high level I mean yeah minor leagues that's high level yeah so you know only certain amount of people get to the majors but obviously he knew his body so that's impressive too and that that he was able to do that that was just a cool that was really cool to talk to him for sure yeah and the fact that he works with professional athletes 
it's got to be telling you something that what he's teaching and what he's putting out and people are coming back to him and working right. with him and they're implementing it into their games, which, and it's interesting because it's, I imagine like that market itself, everybody knows about training, lifting, steroids, <laughs> steroids, <laughs> but like the mental side of it, other than like psychology, I don't think there's much, you know, breath work. That's a pretty big, uh, I think hole in the market for him, which I think he's we learned right now. We learned a lot, and I think if Numi taught us anything, our failure is part of our success story. And I know that I had failure in my breathing, and I'm I'm going to take <laughs> some of the things he told us right away and implement them. Yeah, the mouth breathing, the stuff. But you guys go to his website, check it out. That's about all the time we got for today. Yep, hundred percent. Vlad's done with his walk. Yep, We're Vlad's done. Go. It's over. <laughs> See you guys. All right. Peace. All right, guys. There it was. Harvey Martin. Thanks, Harvey, for taking the time to join us. And thank you guys for listening. And I also want to thank our sponsor, JP4 Foundation. Check them out, jp4foundation.org or on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, any of the socials, at JP4 Foundation. Oh, and check out the website, ltkathletic.com. I've got some gear available, some hats, some lids, so check that out. All right, dudes, appreciate you listening. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And until next time, learn, try, know, and achieve. Hum, babe.